From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Our two-hour roundtable featuring Victor Vigiani, Executive Director at Zeland News Network, Zeland Communications, and uh, Stu Bundy, Assistant Director of MUFON Canada. Uh, He has now left us, but we uh, we still have Chris Stiles with us. Chris, the uh, co-author of Dark Object. Uh, and we're talking about the uh, Shag Harbor UFO incident. Of course, he's also the co-author of Impact to Contact with uh, Graham Sims. And um, we're going to open up the phone lines as well if you have questions and comments, not only about Shag Harbor. Maybe there's another UFO uh, incident you want to talk about. We can uh, perhaps get into Falcon Lake. Before that, let me ask uh, Victor, because we were talking about you know the documents in the National Archives. There are something like 9,500 digitized documents that people mm-hmm. can go on one of these um, uh, gov.ca websites. Right. It's kind of a pain in the butt to try and source these. But tell me what is what that's all about. And then uh, I also want to talk about, you have kind of a new initiative as well called um, the Canadian Research Council on UFOs. Right. We want to talk about that as well. But l- these 9,500 documents... When were they released, and how do we get, how do we find them and search them and so forth? Well, they were released a long time ago. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the actual year that they were released, but I discovered them. Um, uh, I think it was '96 or '97, and I was just paging through documents, looking for things. Came across a page called um, Canada's UFOs: The Search for the uh, Search for the Truth. And well, well, this is interesting. And it said, you know, click on here for data. And I started clicking, and then it came up with 9,500 files on UFOs. And I I did a a cursory reading of the first few. And what I found out was it's extremely difficult to ferret through these things, 9,000 files. And they have not made it easy for you. You go onto the site, and you've got to list the date of the sighting you want, the location of the sighting that you want, and a whole bunch of other information, plus uh, what department you want. Do you want the Department of National Defense? Do you want the Department of Transport? Do you want the National Research Council? Or do you want the RCMP? And they're all categorized within those four categories. So you really have to know exactly what you're looking for. It's like, you know, you want to find a, a number in the telephone book or a person in the telephone book, and you just blindly put your finger down on, on one, and you just read from there. It's extremely difficult to, to, to ferret through these things. So to begin with, um, I started a week, maybe two weeks process of getting up every single day and going to this crazy site and trying to figure out how to parse through these things and then coming up with certain kinds of documents that meant absolutely nothing. They were just you know, UFO reports by Uncle Frank and Aunt Martha sitting in their back porch and saying that they saw a light, they reported it to the RCMP or to whoever. You read through that four or five hundred times, and it gets pretty boring. But then eventually you come up with joint intelligence reports from the Canadian Department of National Defense Intelligence Councils or agencies. And you get a paragraph stating, we need to keep the UFOs under wrap and follow the U.S. policy of non-disclosure about UFOs. And wow. It says, and, we, and then it says directly, we need to follow the United States Air Force policy on this matter. So you've got uh, the Canadian government, this is back in, I think it was 1951 or 52 of this particular document. So you've got the Canadian government as far back as then in lockstep in trying to keep this stuff away from the public. And then they talk about uh, what happens if a UFO were to land, who to contact, uh, where you take the thing to, if it crashes, all these documents. So 
when you read this, after three or four hundred documents and you come up with one, maybe one, that's of even minimal significance, you have to keep on reading more and more and more and more. And I stopped at around 3,000 and something. I just couldn't take it anymore. So um, it would be worthwhile to continue on. And I'm talking about letters from ministers of defense, um, Harkness, Mr. Hellyer. They right. responded. They actually responded to people who had written to the Department of Defense. They wanted to know about UFOs. And Harkness and Hellyer and other ministers of defense said, we know nothing about these things. So, you know, when you take a look at how um, how intrusive all this stuff could really be, if you want to sit down and go through every single um, file, you'd be there till next, you know, whenever. So it's extremely difficult. And the government has made it very, very difficult for anyone to make sense of these things, as, as Chris can, find, uh, you know, can, can corroborate. Uh, the government does not make it easy for us to find out what's going on. And what is this uh, initiative you have, this Canadian Research Council on UFOs? Well, it's, it's part and parcel of what I just said. Uh, what we want to do with, this, with, the, with the council is make um, or create an awareness among the Canadian public that uh, the government has information about this. And these files are so difficult to find. What one of my responsibilities is, at least I feel that it is, is to make this as easy as possible for regular citizens to go to the site and go to specific documents to read how the Canadian government is involved or has been involved in this. Okay, and will continue to be involved in it. That's the one responsibility that I have with this, with the research council. The second thing is to make our elected officials aware of what the heck is going on, because I am convinced and I have proof that they have no idea what's going on, and the proof that I have it, it comes from former Minister of Defense Peter McKay. And when I uh, qu- queried him on uh, on a NORAD incident back in 2001. I explained the entire situation to him about the scrambled jets out of Comox Air Force Base, where they went, the, 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 the altitude they were at, what they encountered, an LR-35 jet, medical evacuation jet out of Anchorage, Alaska, seeing exactly the same thing. He knew nothing about it, couldn't find the file that I had. Okay, So it, it's quite clear that the people in the government uh, positions aren't read into this thing. Or they're, they're, they're pretty big liars, or they're really good liars. I would suspect out of courtesy, they just don't know what's going on. And that information is kind of corroborated by Paul, because back then he didn't really have... Paul Hellier. Yeah, yeah, Paul Hellier, right. Uh, he, he, he didn't know anything about this. He says he was too busy you know, unifying the, the armed forces, which, which I know. I mean, I've talked to Paul enough to, to realize that that's what he was doing. So what we're trying to do with the council is make uh, these politicians... Uh, the, the current Minister of Defense, uh, Mr. Trudeau, the entire cabinet aware of what's going on. And that's the reason by, why if you go to the uh, MUFON site and have a look at the, the CRCU letters that I've sent to the Minister of Defense and to Mr., um, Mr. Trudeau and to all cabinet members, indicating to them that these files are there, that they must look at them. And that's available on the MUFON website right now. And I've faxed that letter to each individual. I have sent an email to each individual, and I've sent um, uh, uh, registered copies in the mail. That cost me 20 bucks each, by the way. And so we want to find out if these people will respond to my request, my direct request, to find out what's going on. Do they have the courage to come forward? And I have invited them to the Alien Cosmic Expo to come. We'll have chairs ready for them open, in reserve, if they want to sit down there with us and become open about this. 
and it's a challenge to the government. And I do not want to be confrontational. I want to help them understand because I know they don't know what's going on. So it's an educational process that we're involved in here. Chris, I want to talk to you about other UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada. Aside from Shag Harbor which is and, and Shelburne, which are sort of the biggies, what other uh, Atlantic Canada UFO incidents are, have you been researching? Why don't I tell you my favorite one? Yes, please. And it's become a favorite down east here of some of the other people that dabble in the phenomena of Paul Kimball, etc. Um, there was a case in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia, here in 1976, and it, it, it really an unusual one. What happened is uh, a woman, uh, and back then all the names still appeared, the Privacy Act wasn't like it is today. She called the RCMP detachment nearby Bedford, Nova Scotia, just outside Metro, and said, could you please send an officer to the house? Uh, there's a UFO over my house, and I'm not feeling too good about it. So <laughs> the RCMP dispatch it. Near midnight, he arrives at the Lower Sackville residence, and when he gets there, in fact, there were three UFOs over the house. And the officer describes them as laws and sort of oblong-shaped craft in three sections, and the middle section is kind of like a tea strainer with a green light moving around in it. He stays with these people for two hours on the front lawn, drinking coffee, sharing his field glasses with the residents, brings out some neighbors and that, writes this nice little one-page report about this, and expresses an opinion, which they typically don't, at the end that says, look, after he communicated with the uh, Halifax International Airport at the time, the nearby Shearwater Base in Dartmouth, and cars in the distance that were at other hills and had a good vantage point. And he expresses the opinion that what he's seen could not be a distant astronomical object. It was not conventional craft, because uh, I would have been able to tell the difference. And he signs the report. Well, when I found this report, I stuck it on my fridge because it was nearby. And one day I was in the area and knocked on the door, hoping the woman still lived there. And she did. Mrs. Webster answered the door and invited me in and says, oh, I'd love to talk to you. Her husband had passed away since this report. This was the mid-90s when I located her. And she basically told me exactly what was in the report without any embellishments. It said, we've been watching for years, but we never seen anything since. Her, her, her adult son was still living with her and the daughter. And uh, it, it was interesting, but it didn't go beyond that. However, um, let me just get you to hold on, Chris. Excuse, pardon the interruption. We'll, uh, sure. we'll pick up on the other side. Uh, Chris Stiles is with us. We're talking about UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada. Uh, UFO disclosure, you name it, we're on it. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network here as well. Back with more in a moment. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Chris Stiles is with us, co-author of Dark Object. We're talking about the Shag Harbor UFO incident, other UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada. Victor Vigiani stays with us from Zeland News Network. And uh, uh, Chris, you were telling us about this other incident. Uh, this this woman who saw these objects over her house. How long were they hovering? About two hours, did you say? Two hours. Yeah. My word. She, yeah. One was described as a, looking like a lozenge, and the other was like a. You know, they were all similar. There were three right. of them, and the officer estimated they were about 500 feet in altitude. Okay, and you tracked this, this woman oh. is uh, was still around when you tracked her down in the the mid 90s. That's correct. Yes. Okay, she invited you into the house, and she. She basically corroborated everything uh, that was stated in the report. 
Yeah, interesting sighting. You know, it, it's nice to see that the UFOs lingered for the officer and everything, you know, so we have an official witness. But here's where it gets interesting. At the end, he mentions the neighbors who were also witnesses to the event, right? After Mrs. Webster completes basically telling me what's in the report, I ask if the neighbors still live next door. And she's like, oh, well, yes, but it wouldn't do you any good to speak to them. And I said, well, you know, in the interest of completeness, I, I, I will. And, oh, she said, they probably won't say anything. She says, you got to understand, we don't get along with the neighbors. So anyway, I went over and knocked there and made the effort, and there was no response at the time. I had their phone number. Everything was complete in this RCMP report. And I kept calling back, and somewhere about three weeks later, Richard, I, I, I got a response. And the gentleman picked up the phone. I said, is this Mr. Robert Beverett? He said, yes. I said, I'd love to speak to you about your UFO sighting back in 1976. And he said, my what? Hmm. And I said, your UFO sighting. Well, he said, I don't think I ever had one of them. And I said, well, you're listed as a witness in this RCMP report. And he said, well, who said that? I said, I guess your neighbor is the Webster's. And he says, oh, God, the Webster's could have seen anything. Uh-oh. Well, this wasn't looking very good all of a sudden. No, I'll say. But I said, hey, I do have an RCMP there, officer. And uh, he said, when was this again? And I, I repeat the date, and he says, I don't even think we lived here then. So I can hear him asking his wife over the phone, dear, when did we move down from Ontario? And she said, who is it? What is it? He goes, never mind, when did we move down? She said, she tells him the date, and he goes, well, I guess I was here. But he says, fellow, he says, I think you're spinning your tires here. And I can hear the wife saying, dear, what is it? And he said, oh, the Webster's or somebody saw a UFO. And she says, I can hear her saying to her husband, dear, that was the night. Remember the night? Aha. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden he pauses and he goes, just a minute. And he covers the phone. And then he comes back on. He says, yeah, I'm sorry about what I said. And I shouldn't have spoke of that about the neighbors. He goes, you've got to understand, we don't get along. I was like, yes. And he says, well, um, I know what you're talking about. So I said, so you, you were a witness to this? And he says, well, I didn't see anything. And I said, well, can you explain? He said, well, it's kind of embarrassing, but me and my wife are upstairs hiding under the bed. Oh. <laughs> so I'm saying hiding under the bed. Well, he says, the host was shaken and the noise was deafening. Oh, my. Meanwhile, in the report, their neighbors are on the lawn with the officer. They hear nothing. It was almost like it was calling out trying to get their attention, right? Right. And I said, this one, he says, listen, I'm a naval architect for D&D. &D. He said, I knew this thing, whatever it was, low over the house, wasn't a Sea King or, or a Labrador helicopter. He said, I didn't want to know what it was. So I said, well, how did your name get here? He says, well, that's the funny thing. All of a sudden, the noise stopped, and I heard a knock at the door. And I come down, and that was the RCMP officer. And he wanted me to step outside and look, he says, but I wouldn't. Wow. So what was that? <laughs> you know, indeed. And and uh, I I just love that. But you know, it's almost I found several other cases like that down east here, and it's I I think it, they come under the heading of you know those type of cases looked into by Jacques Vallée. You know, what you might call reality transformation. And I believe there's a type where two people can stand there, but the event is experienced and witnessed very differently. Right. And it's just amazing. And it puts a tingle up your spine when they tell you this story. And, uh, you know, 
boy, and nobody went to the media. These cases are what I call very pure, and I just love them. Uh, it was that particular sighting, that was in 76, Was is that to be found on that .gov.ca website, do you it, know? It might be. I'm not sure. I actually found the case in Stanton Friedman's basement in Fredericton. Hmm. And he gave me a box of files to go looking through back then, just hoping to find more about Shag Harbor, and that's one of the many... Uh, down these cases here, I found that I spend a lot of time looking into and re-interviewing people. You know, when you think about it, we have a unique situation here in Canada. The RCMP reports, they're a disinterested third party largely, and when they go and investigate a UFO case, it's kind of like, doesn't matter if it was a murder or a theft or a stolen car, they just write it up. You know, when their training says, just write what you see, write what you hear. And it's a great place to find and exploit great cold cases like that, and we're very lucky. I've got a, a bit of an insight for you, Chris. Um, there's a fellow um, up here. Um, his name is uh, Dave Scott. He has a podcast um, called Spaced Out Radio. And I've been on the, the podcast a couple of times. And recently, uh, about three weeks ago, I had a conversation with him. We were talking about the ACE conference and trying to get together to do a little bit of promotion. And he said, Victor, I, I, there's something I should tell you. And this happened to him about a month ago, is my understanding. And uh, there was an incident uh, near his house, around, in, in his in, in his community, where uh, the RCMP had to be called. And so the RCMP showed up. I don't know what the incident was. It wasn't a UFO sighting or anything like that. But uh, there was a could have been a uh, domestic dispute. I, I don't really know. But the fact of the matter was that uh, people crowded around, and there was just things going on back and forth. So Dave Scott, being the inquiry-based you know, individual that he is, very you know hard questioner. He um, spoke very, very um, closely with an RCMP officer who was on the site uh, administering to the situation. So once things settled down, um, Dave had a conversation with the uh, with the RCMP officer. Can I just ask you a question? So the officer, he's just a young fellow. The the officer was, and uh, he said, "Sure, go ahead, shoot." When you guys get a report about a UFO, what do you do? And so it's simple. It's simple. The first thing we do is uh, we call Cheyenne Mountain. We let them know that there's a UFO sighting wherever it happens to be, and then the jets are scrambled. And uh, he, they said, "How long has that been going on?" He said, "Well, as long as I've been an officer for at least eight or ten years, and probably even longer than that, way back in history." So it is common practice for the RCMP, and I go back to your situation, Chris, that you described about those UFOs. It might have been interesting to find out at that particular point if there was a call made to Cheyenne Mountain or even NORAD, because this young fellow was really—he was totally convinced this is RCMP protocol. Well, it is, and that's, you know, there's a chapter in my book there about the Space Object Contingency Plan. The chapter's called The Master Plan, mm-hmm. and one of the things that surfaced in my research on Shag Harbor was the release of this in uh, the early, I forget the year now, 2000s. I sent copies to many people across Canada and that, and um, it actually documents the policy, and the people were shocked to see in writing that they were to contact and provide escort to any bona fide U.S. official to an impact site and all this. It's all laid out in the uh, space object plan, which I got released from the RCMP from a cover letter. And it's a very interesting story in that chapter, how it goes. I'll tell you, it certainly wasn't through the Access to Information Act that I got it released. I caught them in a little misfire in a response to another request, and uh, um, it's very entertaining. I'll probably be telling that story as part of my presentation in Toronto. But I was a busy guy in the 90s and 2000s, I'll tell you. 
the fact that they have a policy and the fact oh, that this, the fact that this young officer is able to recite it without you know looking for his handbook he knew automatically well this yeah. is what we have to do obviously you know this is you know it's 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 front and center they yeah. they know about this stuff the funniest part about it i think though and they were very embarrassed when they first released it to me and the, and the uh, the RCMP chief archivist called to try to explain it and he ended up laughing trying to explain it to me i must admit was the alternate title we'd looked for this for years and was called the space object contingency plan and that's how they refer to it but it had a second title and underneath right on the cover sheet it says aka the master plan <laughs> <laughs> You got you know you can't make this stuff up. The 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 undertow of this kind of information, Chris, uh, you know, as you as you probably know um, through your, all of your investigations, the undertow of this points to the fact that uh, th- this thing is orchestrated. Uh, if there's policy on this, as Richard just said, uh, the orchestration, the level of orchestration that's going on among governments, uh, not just the Canadian government, but internationally, uh, how, how do you interpret that, that general orchestration of how this thing is kept under the glass ceiling? How, how do you interpret well, uh, all of that? Let me just explain how this got revealed, and it, it has something to say about this directly. Mm-hmm. When I caught them up in this, uh, you know, that they had this thing, I was actually looking for an RCMP UFO file, and they called up and said, no, we just transferred everything to National Archives. You know, they do this every three years, and there's nothing here. In fact, all there is is this old policy document called the Space Object. And I go, that's it. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. And the officer to call me back said, no, it's not. I got your request in front of me. Well, I said, no, that is what I want. I was lying through my teeth. I just said, it's just like I didn't know what it was properly called. Could you please give me the actual file number? And this is how this began. Because every time you asked, they never knew what we were talking about. So they gave me the file number. And when I when it first came, then the chief archivist called me and said, that number didn't make any sense. I said, oh, I'm sure it's correct because the corporal read it to me and a few other things. The next thing you know, he called back an hour later and says, I know what you're talking about. Yes, we have it. And I said, yes. He goes, I think we can help you, but this is not going to happen under the Act. And I said, yes. And he went on and he said, look, um, he says, I can't do it under the Act because I won't have time. He says, you can, I can ask for a 15-day extension, but I still can't respond in 45 days. So what's going to happen is I need permission. And here's, here's the part. From every provincial capital in Canada, from Ottawa, from Washington, and from Moscow, because it reveals our working relationship on UFOs with foreign powers. Well, they, with Moscow? We have this arrangement with Moscow? Well, apparently we had it. And what happened is, uh, so what I said to him was, look, as long as I can see we're making progress and I get updates from you, I said, I see no reason to complain to the Information Commissioner of Canada. And he said, well, I can do (laughs) that. Nicely played. (laughs) And he called me, you know, once a month through to it and said, well, I got the letter from Magine. I got the letter from Washington. I got, you know. And when it first arrived, it was very interesting because it tells you everything from what agency's in charge, you know, how far down, when you're supposed to stand. It had scripts in it for cover stories and everything. Scripts for cover stories? And it was unredacted. They even paid for the photocopying. Better service than National Archives. <laughs> what? What? I mean, this is a major disclosure document. This, I'm sorry, but this makes that New York Times story look the pale in comparison. Well, it's 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 all documented. Am I wrong? In, in, in the book, 
and uh, is this, the chapter is called the Master Plan. This is in the, uh, the you know the newer book, the uh, Impact to Contact. Can, can we get this online, uh, Chris? Um, I'd, I'd be glad to, to, to send you a copy here. That would be fantastic because yeah, there's there's like about fifty pages, and I'm not sure the cover it might take me a day or two to get it to you. That's fine. Up. No one's been interested for a while. Well, th- that whole thing, it, it, as Richard is saying, it's, it's another piece of this puzzle, the, the, another mm-hmm. converging line of evidence. Yeah, and I have the, the cover letter with it when they released it and everything. It's uh, yeah, it's a major piece of it the is. puzzle because I, I mean. You, when we look at what the New York Times story was all about, mm-hmm. you know, $22 million, we're, we're studying advanced, you know, we're assessing the threat and so forth. Here's a here's a major policy piece document. of policy on how to handle them. Here's a cover story if you well, need a script. Well, it's about unknown objects. They never use the term UFO, and if it's very clear what they're talking about. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. in my interactions with NORAD, and I've had a lot, okay, a lot, specifically with the with the NORAD commander in in Colorado, and they use terms like non-correlated targets. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, TOIs, tracks of interest, exactly. uh, unknowns. Yeah. So they always skirt around the issue, and um, the, the 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 idea behind uh, what you don't say as opposed to what you do say. What you don't say is just as powerful as what you do. In some ways, it's more powerful. You need to print that, that document, and you need to hand that to someone in, in the, at, at the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail, because as far as I'm concerned, Chris, uh, I mean, this is the first time, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about it. This, this is big. This is monumental. If you can or am, get... I, am, I, am I exaggerating? No, I don't think you are. Well, back in the day, I, I sent it to the old Canufo website, and uh, there were about ten people contact me, and of course, I, I get them copies. In those days, I was mostly mailing hard copies, and you know, um, it wasn't anything I held in my chest. But there wasn't a great deal of interest at the time, to be honest. Well, maybe now the time is right. Well, maybe it is. Anyway, I'll get them to you with some attachments there somehow, or send one up to you for sure. You yeah, know? for sure. It, it, that's of course, something. we'll be seeing you in Toronto there in June too. Well, the, the thing is, that there's a bit of a time constraint here because the the Canadian the Canadian Research Council on UFOs that I've just established, we have um, a page on the MUFON uh, site that uh, that Stu and and, uh, and Ryan Stacy put together, and we have a number of documents up there. They're going to be growing, let's put it that way. And the documents that we do have up there are from the 9,500 files. Mm-hmm. However, if you can get me this particular policy document and we can go through, I can go through it and find yeah. out what the salient pages are, I have a major network here in Canada. I'm not mm-hmm. going to use the call letters on the, on, on the air here, but that may be interesting and has already covered the Pentagon issue mm-hmm. in, in an interview. On, well, on. this would have been the rules of the RCMP, like when mm-hmm. they went to a case and they would call the provincial division, they would have called Ottawa and referred to this, this was the rules, mm-hmm. you see? Mm-hmm. That's a big picture. It's a big yeah. picture policy document. And, and, and this applied to UFOs, of course, it also applied, applied to anything such as uh, Cosmos 954. Sure, yeah. That fell in the high Arctic there. Yeah. Right, uh, right. You know, the Soviet uh, nuclear satellite that made such a mass... Sky Lab, etc. This is what they refer to. But any unknown object from space that landed, these were the rules for the RCMP. But but those stories don't need cover story scripts, do they? Well, there's actually scripts in it at the end of how to deal with the media and that. There's suggestions. Okay, dealing with the media is one thing, but a cover story script. Here's one you can use. You know, no, that that's that we, they don't need that for a, if a satellite falls out of the sky or an atomic furnace. Or, <laughs> Indeed. 
this is uh, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're, we're about to head into a break. When we come back, are you going to talk a little bit about Falcon Lake? I mean, I know it's not it's not. Uh, well, I, I can tell you what I learned about it when I was Ottawa in '94, and I interviewed Squadron Leader William Bain face to face. He was with the air desk at the time, one of the two majors that ran it. All right, we'll we'll do that when we come back. Yeah, the topic came up, of course. All right, Chris Dial stays with us. Victor Vigiani onto Falcon Lake sometimes described as Canada's best documented UFO case, although Chris Stiles would beg to differ. Well, we'll get into that when we come back. Also, John Podesta on a recent episode of Ancient Aliens. We'll discuss that as well. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Chris Stiles is with us co-author of Dark Object about the Shag Harbor UFO incident, co-author of From Impact to Contact, and uh, we're about to discuss the Falcon Lake UFO incident. Victor Vigiani also here from Zealand News Network, and just a reminder again, the Alien Cosmic Expo conference coming up June 22nd, 23rd, 24th at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, and uh, for more information... And uh, tickets, you can go to aliencosmicexpo.com or my live events page at strangeplanet.ca. I'll be moderating a roundtable discussion on disclosure on Sunday. That's the 24th of June. All right. The the Falcon Lake, uh, I mentioned earlier that the Royal Mint, uh, Canadian Royal Mint, uh, they've now sold out of their commemorative coin. Uh, on the uh, the Falcon Lake UFO incident, and uh, we're waiting for the uh, the Shag Harbor commemorative coin. That must uh, I'm sure that's in the works. Uh, but take us back to F- to Falcon Lake because it's also 1967. Um, but this is um, this is in in Manitoba, and uh, this is a very unique incident in that we actually have what appears to be a physical injury related to this UFO incident. Now, uh, is it Stefan Michalik? Is that how you pronounce his name, or Michalak? Well, I, I've heard so many pronunciations. Uh, most people seem to think now that it's Stefan Michalik. Michalik, okay. But I've, I've heard so many variants, you know. So he goes into the woods near Falcon Lake, Manitoba, and he, come, and he sees this object, and, and he has these burns, like, yeah. a, like, a, like a waffle iron type pattern on his chest yeah supposedly uh, there was a hot discharge from a vent on the side of the ufo you know that had landed or was just above the the ground right i've never investigated this case it's a very well-known one it's been looked at but the topic of that did come up when we were talking about how things ran at the air desk i was lucky enough back in 1994 to interview uh, squadron leader William Bain. He was retired then, who was one of the two majors through the 60s at the air desk in Ottawa. And uh, when that case came up, I was rather surprised, actually, you know, because I, I wanted to know what his impressions were. And he thought that uh, the case was of merit and was genuine and that, you know, they were being told the truth. And I was slightly surprised by that, not that I'm questioning the uh, the merit of his testimony of, of Stefan Mihalik, but uh, the thing is, I know that the Americans, uh, the Condon Committee went up and did an on-site investigation with the case, right? 
and they thought they were being given the run around in the woods and uh you know mind you one of the investigators thought perhaps it was because he didn't want to show claims he was a prospector and but generally they did not feel good about the story and the evidence um one of the other interesting things is apparently the mounties tried to get him to recant they actually took him out and got him drunk a few times oh is that right yeah and befriended him and things there was all kinds of shenanigans going on uh but the thing is, is that, you know, Bain said he thought it was quite genuine. Um, although one of the other Mounties thought that the radioactive samples from the pure radium and the smears they found in the rock had been material that they thought was stolen from a nearby local hospital. So, you know, it was somewhat controversial, but uh, um, it's interesting to note, too, I, I was very surprised at this, that Bain, you know, who felt very strongly about Shag Harper and felt it was a genuine incident, he felt the same was true about Falcon Lake. Um, and he even told me about personal sightings he had, which uh, when he was a, a pilot flying S-2 subtractors off the coast of Nova Scotia, you know. So I suppose he was in the Believer camp, so it might have been easier for him. But the, the problem I had with Falcon Lake, why I always found Shea Harbor more interesting, is essentially Falcon Lake is a single witness case, largely. Right. right. And it, you know, it, it stands that weakness where we have double digit witnesses and, you know, lots of involvement in the Shag Harbor case. But it's certainly a case of merit. It's one of the great Canadian cases. It's the largest UFO file in terms of what's socked away there in Records Group 77 in Ottawa. Interesting. You know what I mean? Yes. Definitely one of the biggies. And then here we have two, we have two, he, he sees two craft. Yes. One is flying at very high speed. The other lands about 100 feet from him. He goes up and he yeah. touches it, burns his hand. Yeah. And then, as you say... Uh, Attempts to communicate with the occupants. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, testimony from his son, who is, uh, I think, nine years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And he just remembers his father being in bed, very sick, looking very pale, and he remembers... Uh, he said something that reminded me of what you mentioned about the, the smell of the foam in Shag Harbor. You said mm-hmm. it smelled like sulfur. And that's exactly what Stan said about his, when he went into the room, that's the first thing that struck him was the god-awful smell. He said it smelled like sulfur and a burnt-out engine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can clearly see that there are many photographs that exist of his injury. And eventually, I think he went down to a, was what the Mayo Clinic for Treatment in the U.S., and uh, it is what it is. What I can tell you is, like I say, there was a difference between U.S. authorities and ours, but I know in Ottawa, the you know, when I spoke with Bain and some other staffers there, they were, they thought it was a merit and genuine, and they, they generally believed the prospector's story. Why would the RCMP bother to take him out, try to get him to recant his story, get him drunk? Why don't they just, they could have just let it go away? You know, why were they so... <laughs> Well, intent because I, on getting I, I guess the world wanted more of it. You know, we, you know, once the word gets out and people kept coming up and doing follow-up investigations, and I, I guess they thought if they could get rid of it quick and easy and just do away with it, perhaps it would stop, uh, you know, U.S. authorities from coming up and others and the media attention, you know. I mean, when in doubt, you know, you try to cool these things down. I mean, look, after Shag Harbor, I found many clippings in there that were in Ottawa in the Airdes files. One was of a, a quote from a Nova Scotia newspaper called The Province that used to exist. And in it, there's a little story where they're interviewing one of the NRC guys that took over from the Airdes. Yes. And he said, they're saying, 
so they're asking about Shag Harbor, and at the bottom, they write in the column beside it with an arrow point and say, these statements do not help the situation in Nova Scotia. <laughs> they do not and, help and the situation. And what the headline on the story was, was he could believe in UFOs. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, you know, being a PhD and an NRC guy, you can't ignore it. Great on a slow, slow news day. We're going to head into a break here shortly, but what was it about 1967? What was, I mean, south of the border, you had uh, the, the UFO incidents at Malmstrom and these nuke, nuke bases. What was going on, Victor? What do you think? Well, the, the, uh, the one in 65 um, in Pennsylvania, the, the Kecksburg incident, right, a right. very, very puzzling incident. Um, it just seemed that that particular period of time, uh, they, they, either the awareness was up and people's eyes were to the skies more, or there were, in fact, more um, intrusive incursions in our airspace uh, by these craft of unknown, of unknown uh, origin. It's really hard to say, and I think when it comes right down to it, eventually, when we do find out what's going on, you're going to see these hills and valleys and you know high peaks and low peaks of these sightings. And there's probably reasons for that, very, very specific reasons, and which have to do with governmental involvement and communication with these extraterrestrials. When we come back, John Podesta, Hillary's failed campaign manager, was recently on an episode of Ancient Aliens. We'll find out what that was all about when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Hey, welcome back. Chris Stiles is with us. And he will be speaking uh, also Sunday, June 24th at uh, 10.30 a.m. at the Alien Cosmic Expo. He'll be talking all about uh, Shag Harbor and uh, Shelburne, Nova Scotia, the, uh, the UFO incident uh, back in 1967, October of 1967. Again, the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22, 23, 24. Uh, all of the uh, the luminaries in the uh, the field of ufology. Stanton Friedman will be making his penultimate appearance there. After that, uh, he's on to Roswell in July, and then no more live appearances from Stanton Friedman. Uh, of course, Richard Dolan, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, Grant Cameron, uh, I mentioned Richard Dolan, Victor Vigiani, of course, here in studio from Zeland News Network. Uh, Kathleen Marden will be there, the uh, the niece of uh, Betty and Barney Hill, of course, the uh, the preeminent uh, alien abduction uh, case. So again, that's at the Toronto Marriott Hotel, Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, AlienCosmicExpo.com for uh, for more information. I'll be there on the 24th as well, conducting or not conducting, moderating the uh, the roundtable on. UFO disclosure. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, John Podesta, who is um, who, who appeared recently on an episode of Ancient Aliens. Now, this is kind of um, an interesting uh, episode. They, they're speculating that had Clinton or Clinton would have led a UFO disclosure movement had she won the presidency, and and. Uh, there's some implication that the CIA and the Pentagon were worried about Hillary and therefore they arranged for her to lose the election in order to prevent UFO disclosure. Interesting premise for a, for a program. However, I haven't seen it. Uh, Victor, you have? And your, mm-hmm. your thoughts? Well, uh, I've been watching that program now for, jeez, uh, this is the 13th episode, I think, in terms of the 13th year. 13th season. Yeah. Season, rather. Yeah, and uh, they're... Their main um, thrust is the ancient alien 
theory that these extraterrestrials have been here for thousands and thousands of years and that we may have originated from them and all kinds of information about Egypt and Samaria and right. everything. So they, they, they went back in history and did a lot of research, which is, and they do it in a quality way. It's a little bit of a stretch sometimes, but they, they, Stay within that bailiwick, in the confines of that of that theory. However, this uh, uh, this this season, the first episode is called the UFO conspiracy, and it's a two-hour uh, episode, which is unusual. All of them are just one hour, and they go into literally everything that's regarding uh, this whole disclosure issue. They start off with. Um, well, geez, the Clintons, for example, they talk about exactly what you just talked about, about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton's, their interest. They go into the, the findings of Grant Cameron with respect to the Rockefeller Initiative and the, the initiative that Lawrence S. Rockefeller took with the Clinton family, in particular President uh, Clinton at the time, to come clean on, on UFOs and the extraterrestrial presence. They also talk about um, what Clinton wanted to find out through uh, Webster Hubble. And when uh, Clinton came out um, uh, as as president, he wanted to find out two things, and he brought Webster Hubble in to the Justice Department and said, I want you to find out two things. Number one, who killed JFK? And number two, are there such things as UFOs and aliens? Uh, they, they, they talk about that. What else? They talked about uh, Eisenhower's involvement. Uh, they also talked about um, John Podesta, as you, as you referenced. John Podesta is salt and peppered all the way through the two hours with some very, very incisive information about what levels of security and secrecy each president has as they come through the, uh, the, uh, the, the Oval Office, talking about uh, some have a real tight fist on, 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 on secrecy and others kind of more open. And his insights are really interesting because he's he spent so much time uh, as the, the chief of staff with with Clinton. He got to see exactly not only uh, what Clinton believed, and he called him one of the most curious people or uh, most curiosity-centered persons that he's ever known in his life. This is you know from the mouth of John Podesta. So it's quite interesting that, that ancient aliens would have taken on this tact. And not only did they do that, they went to the 2013 citizen hearings on disclosure that were held um, in May and in April of 2013 that was organized by Stephen Bassett with the uh, five, five congressmen and one senator. And they brought forward about 30 people, 30 witnesses with over 40 hours of testimony. And they had clips of that. Paul Hellyer was on, Richard Dolan was on. And it, would, it really surprised me the level of accuracy, number one, and the um, production value of this, of this particular episode. And it really kind of struck me that not only is ancient aliens going back and looking at what these things might have been in the past, but they're also looking forward to what this whole disclosure issue might be. Right. And that's where I think they're going with this. And so it was an extremely incisive, very well done, uh, very professionally oriented uh, kind of program that I think is ever on again. I think they do a bit of a loop on this. So probably play it back again in two or three weeks. Uh, so I would really encourage people to kind of look at it. Uh, if you're on Bell, it's on uh, uh, 15 uh, History Channel. I think right, so. right. Which so, is curious to me is why presidents and other high-profile political figures mm-hmm. are always so curious after they're in office. If Hillary Clinton was so big on this issue. Why wasn't she when she had the podium as Secretary of State? talking about this. And why does Bill Clinton wait until he's out of office for 12 years before going on Jimmy Kimmel and yucking it up about uh, Area 51? If they're being genuine and they are curious about it, 
Why aren't they curious while they're in office? I find that very odd. Yeah, you know, I know. I, I there's something that I've wondered about all all along. And if you go back with many many of the presidents, uh, Jimmy Carter, for example, he was dead set against secrecy, and he asked uh, the at the time the CIA director George W. Bush Senior. Mm-hmm. He said, um, as a as president elect, I want the UFO files. I want access to them. And Bush said to him at the time, uh, Mr. President, uh, you don't have a need to know. And he went on from there and, and, uh, and uh, eventually struck a deal with, uh, I guess, someone just to keep quiet while he was in office. I know lots of stuff was going on. See, if, if that happened anything. to me if I was president, if I were Jimmy Carter, I'd just, in the interest of transparency, I'd just come out and say, well, you know what, at a press conference, I'd just blurt it out. I'd say, you know what, I'm very interested in UFOs. You might call me crazy, but I, I saw one yeah. once and I, I asked the CIA director and he told me I don't have a need to know. I'd just... Blow it right out of the water, just like that. Well, I think in you saying that, that that brings up the point, what kind of pressure would they have been under from other parts within the intelligence community to say, Mr. President, if you start talking about this kind of stuff, your credibility is going to go down the the drain very, very quickly. So there may be political pressure as to why they they don't say anything. Uh, Reagan attempted to. He went before the UN and talked about if an unknown threat came, we would all be much more united. Uh, he, He skirted the issue. But well, he, he was using it metaphorically. He was, yes. But we know for a fact that he was extremely involved in the UFO. Um, uh, well, the other option is to do like Ike in his farewell address. Mm-hmm. You spill the beans on your way out while you still have the microphone. I think it points to the power of the deep state government. And when you take a look at the, the power that the presidents have regarding everything from national security to policy making, et cetera, et cetera, that they don't really run the government. They really don't. And if they do go out on the limb, I think the intelligence communities have ways of dealing with people. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and people will know I, they'll disagree with me on this and many others who, who feel the same way as I do, that's one of the reasons why JFK was, was put away. That's one of the theories, and I happen to subscribe to that because of all of the information within the Kennedy camp at the time and his communication with the National Security uh, Advisors and Moscow about all this stuff. And also, uh, we have a clear evidence, very clear evidence from um, uh, from Daniel Sheehan, the, the, the Watergate lawyer involved in it, talking with uh, the former president of the, of the Soviet Union, uh, Union um, Gorbachev, about the existence, and he was told directly by Gorbachev, these things exist. So it's, sitting people don't really have the luxury of standing on the podium and saying what which you're saying. I think that they, they feel the threats of, of, the, of the deep state, and that's one of the reasons why I think they just keep quiet. Chris, you're a, a real boots-on-the-ground, kind of you know, knock on doors, roll up your sleeves, do the, the research. Where are you in this whole UFO disclosure uh, is it something that you, you you think about, or are you just are you just just the facts, ma'am? Just the facts. Um, well, the problem I have with it, I, I mean, in one sense, I have no problem with it. But if the government was suddenly to tell me and fess up, hey, look, here's the deal, what we know about these, and here's any deal we might have with them, I'd be just as suspicious of the of the admission as I would of their denials. You know, right? I, I'd kind of like to have it come from somewhere else. But you know, I was listening to just what the two of you were saying there, and maybe it's like that awful movie Independence Day, like <laughs> where they tell the president when he asks, "How come I didn't know about this?" He goes, "Sir, you don't have the security clearance." That's right. Right. It's like that old Johnny that, that Carson might be show. More true than yeah. we know. Yeah, it's like the old Johnny Carson show. Who do you trust? You know. Mm. 
Nobody. <laughs> well, so then where does that leave us? What's, uh, let's just, in, yeah, in the couple minutes that remain, um, talk about, again, what happened in, De- in December with uh, Luis Elizondo, you know, revealing that he'd been in charge of the secret Pentagon program, um, ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. We know Robert Bigelow was involved uh, and, and his private space uh, exploration company. Uh, they were they they brought Bigelow on on stream because he had a facility where you could study stuff under you know top secret conditions. What does Bigelow have? Do you think, Victor? From my understanding, he has a building with materials in it. That's that's the, what that's what he was saying. With that, materials, with materials like actual physical materials that can be inspected and analyzed. That's that's what I understand he has. So it's been five months since the New York Times article. Where is Bigelow in all this? Why isn't he? Telling us more. It's, it's, I think it goes back to what Chris was talking about. You know, it, as soon as information comes out from either an independent agency or uh, a government agency, it's, it's a matter of who do you trust and how fast will that information be discredited. And I think uh, Bigelow went out on a limb at 60 Minutes when he talked about, uh, you know, he, was, he was interviewed and said, uh, the, the lady uh, interviewer said, you know, if you come forward with this, people are going to think you're crazy. And he said, I don't care. I just don't care. So do they give him more airtime to come and talk more about this uh, or do, and to have it come out in an independent way? Or is there some sort of conduit through, the, uh, through which the Pentagon is working to have this information come out on almost a, a two-pronged approach, an independent and a governmental? So we have to kind of balance those two and see how this whole disclosure um, issue, uh, the stew, percolates. And it's getting much more tasty. Let me tell you, and I think we've only just scratched the surface as to how this disclosure issue is going to unfold in the next six to eight months. To be continued June 22nd, 23rd, 24th at the Alien Cosmic Expo, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network. Very quickly, how do people read your dispatches? Zeland Communications News Blog. Zeland Communications News Blog. We, we have Linda Moulton Howell book. Linda Moulton Howell is booked before Ace. All right, Linda Moulton Howe will be on the program towards the end of May. All right, Chris Stiles, thank you. We'll see you there as well. It was a pleasure. Dark objects and from impact to contact. Thanks uh, to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, and Ryan White back next week with a brand new program. We'll take a a humorous look at political correctness. And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley as well will be here. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, claim, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>